You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Bitcoin is all everyone can talk about right now, or the only thing they've been talking about. It's on everyone's lips. You know, to the point where it's dominating the mainstream news cycle and has even created a hysteric frenzy. I bought some Bitcoin for my kids' college fund. They'll it's thank crazy. me later. The price has soared over 100%. I can't believe that Bitcoin broke $2,000. Hello, early retirement. Thanks, Thanks for Man, Bitcoin. I can't believe I didn't buy the price of Bitcoin. If you look at the Bitcoin price action, Bitcoin. Bitcoin. we know it's a healthy bubble. Buy now. Bitcoin. Now, if you didn't know any better, you'd think the price was all Bitcoin had going for it. But that isn't the big story. That's not even close to what you need to know and to pay attention to. What you need to be paying attention to are the groundbreaking applications of Bitcoin. You know, the kind of applications that have the potential to redefine entire industries and economies. Let's say, for example, there are over 220 million Indians with smartphones who live in a country that just banned physical cash and is rapidly shifting to digital payments and savings. This is massive for Bitcoin. Or even take the $500 billion global remittance market, where people still pay hefty fees to transfer money back home. That doesn't make any sense. Now, Bitcoin is already eating into this market and changing how tens of millions of people transfer money across borders. And to help us dive deeper into these game-changing applications, we'll be speaking with two leading voices in the Bitcoin community. Featuring Tour de Meester, founder of Adamant Research. And so that made total sense to me. Like to me, to have this idea of digital gold, where, you know, it's some digital means to preserve wealth uh, that is designed to protect the saver. Uh, you know, and once, once I understood what problems it solved, like why all of a sudden now it existed and it had not existed before, uh, that's when I became convinced that th- there really could be something there. And Vinny Lingham, co-founder and CEO of Civic and a shark on Shark Tank South Africa. Allowing a billion people in Africa to vote for their governments using their mobile phones instantly and not be at risk of being, you know, uh, intimidated at the voting stations. This happens in Africa and and other parts of the world. Uh, Not being at risk of of their vote being put in the wrong place because you could verify it on the blockchain. So decentralized voting infrastructure to mobile phones. But it's a long road for us to get there. And and as a company, we may never get there. But I think it's more the vision of what we we think that the world needs. And and so it's kind of our civic responsibility. And we think it's it's something which would be, if we pulled it off, would be a very cool uh, platform. Sure, Bitcoin recently hit $2,700. But that's not what matters. This week on Adventures in Finance, Bitcoin. Also coming up in this week's episode, as usual, we have our long, short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and the not-so-good stories of the week. Uh, this week, I'm actually Long Bay Systems, which is a, Europe- a French-based um, aerospace and defense company. Uh, it's one of the top 10 holdings in the stock uh, TMI Aerospace and Defense Index. My short is uh, Chinese theme parks. Chinese are about to open or about to finish building a theme park based around the Titanic. And in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share an investing lesson they derived 
from that experience. Yeah, this week we have the always excellent Jesse Felder uh, from out in Oregon. Jesse's an independent investor and the publisher of the Felder Report, and he explains to us how uh, a very high conviction position of his got screwed when the government changed the rules on it. Uh, I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. All right, today is June the 1st, 2017, and we are just about to embark on episode 18 of Adventures in Finance. Now, this week's a little different um, for a couple of reasons. You're hearing my voice now. Uh, In a second, we're going to find out where Aaron is in the world. The tables have turned. But this week, um, I want to dedicate the podcast to daughters. First of all, our fearless producer, James, has uh, returned to us after the birth of his baby girl. James, congratulations. Thank you very much, Grant. Everybody good at home? James. Yeah, everyone's doing good. And surprisingly, we are managing to catch up on some sleep after coming out of the hospital. Yeah, being, you want to store that sleep up the best you can. Mate. Don't, let, don't let them fool you. It's not the first couple of months that <laughs> are the worst. It's all lies, mate. It's all lies. <laughs> it's the next 17 years. <laughs> and, and today being June the 1st, 2017, I will have to give a shout out here to my own daughter, Molly who turns 26 today. Happy birthday, Molls. Uh, okay, Aaron, so where in the world are you? I don't agree. I feel kind of left out. I'm the only one without a daughter here to, to give a shout out to. But um, to answer your question, I am in Toronto, Canada. Um, I am here on assignment. Well, actually, it's not that exciting. I'm just back here to get my passport renewed because it was set to expire. So uh, yeah, I am in Drury. It's been raining a lot, but I am in Toronto, Canada at the moment. Excellent. Well, it makes a nice change for me to be here in the Cayman Islands and you to be on the road and I'm going to enjoy every second of it. Well, you should. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, while I'm here, I would actually love to do some on the ground uh, reporting or maybe on the ground research on what's happening with Home Capital Group and, and uh, maybe even potentially pay a visit to our friends at Gold Money. So uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll keep you posted about that. Just stay away from the cannabis stores. Um, I don't have one of those cards, so I don't think I can get in yet. All right, fine. Yeah. All right, well, look, enough talk of... Canadia and uh, cannabis. Let's get into our long shorts of the week, Aaron. And seeing as you are the man on the road this week, I'm going to let you pick which one of yours you want to go first with. Well, um, this is a tough one because I think both are pretty interesting. But you know what? Let me go with my long for the week first. Now, uh, recently, uh, Donald Trump was in Europe for the NATO meeting and uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, came with a pretty incendiary comment about how can no longer uh, count on the U.S. as an ally. And I was thinking about what this would mean in terms of, you know, just NATO developing its its defense and, you know, maybe spending more on, on defense and aerospace. So uh, this week I'm actually long base systems, which is a, Europe, a French-based um, aerospace and defense company. Uh, it's one of the top 10 holdings in the stock uh, TMI Aerospace and Defense Index. And I was just looking at the technicals. It's very, very bullish, breaking up to the upside uh, out of a previous all-time high. Uh, with about 30% upside, it seems. So uh, I am long Bay Systems. Well, this is um, this is breaking with uh, tradition here, and this is like a genuine long idea you come up with. Yeah, it's a- <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to do about this. You, you've thrown well, me for a loop. Uh, well, look, it's not uh, it's not a trade recommendation. Uh, let's just make that clear. I think we have a disclaimer at the end of the podcast, but I don't know. I, I mean, I spend... I feel like so many of my longs have been shorts in disguise. Uh, so I'm trying to get out of my cynical box a little bit and actually go long hmm. certain things. I mean... Previously, I, I think a couple of weeks, no, about a month ago, I, I said go long Greece, uh, even go long Portugal, and, and those trades worked out pretty well. So uh, I'm trying to get out of the cynical box, as I said. All right. Well, I will put us right back in there. It seems the sensible <laughs> thing to do. Um, this week, I am long copper, uh, and uh, specifically 
the copper that one finds in bronze. And the reason for this is uh, uh, a war between a set of sculptors in New York City. Now, we've all oh. seen the picture <laughs> of the famous bull uh, down on Wall Street. Oh, uh, I know this. The bull that most people seem to have their picture taken of standing behind rather than front, but that's a whole different story. Now, you want recently, to get behind a bull market. Yeah, well, okay. That's one reason. Uh, recently, uh, as I'm sure you saw in the in the in the in the press, um, another sculptor put up a statue of what he called "Fearless Girl," being stood right across from the bull, standing there facing it down. And this has enraged a New York City sculptor called uh, Alex Gardega, who has retaliated with a work of his own, and he's created the statue of a small dog, uh, which is urinating <laughs> up the leg of the fearless girl, uh. and. He was, he was absolutely beside himself that this, this, the guy that put the fearless girl there had defamed the original work of the uh, guy who sculpted the bull, and he's extremely against it. Uh, and this is inflaming temperatures in New York. Uh, people are taking sides. But either way, I'm guessing this is the start of something. Now, what the next <laughs> sculptor is going to put next to the urinating dog, I don't know. But one presumes that when he does, he's going to require some bronze, and that will require some copper. So I am long copper thanks to uh, squabbling sculptors. Yeah, I don't know how that stacks up against China's declining demand, but uh, yeah, I think you might be right. I, you know, Grant, I think it's actually worth going into a little bit why the original sculptor behind the, the bull on Wall Street was incensed by the the placement of the uh, the fearless girl. Because, you know, the uh, the original intent of the bull, as I understand it, was actually, you know, as a symbol of American entrepreneurialism and, uh, you know, just, you know, American strength. Um, but that whole, that kind of symbol was essentially appropriated with, with the, uh, w with the introduction of the fearless girl, because, uh, what the bull was then transferred to was essentially like, you know, like, uh, I guess uh, some kind of oppression or, or, uh, or, or the patriarchy. I mean, you know, the feminists have kind of jumped on that as well. So I don't know. I just think it's interesting. Now we have this sort of duel off of the, of the sculptors. <laughs> well, we will see where this leads, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, we're, we're at the urinating dog and it's, uh, it's, it's somebody <laughs> else's move. So we'll see what happens next. Now, what about, uh, what about your short for the week? What have you got this week? Yeah, this, this week I am short Italy. Um, and specifically I'm short Italian banks. Uh, they've been out of the news cycle for quite a bit, but, um, things are still happening in Italy and the Monte Depashi and some of the regional banks have yet to secure a bailout from the state, uh, because it's pending approval from the EU. Uh, so Monte Depashi now recently is trying to offload some of its bad loans and sell its bad loans in order to get to the point where they can get the state bailout. But that is actually in question. And when you look at the uh, credit default spreads, um, for Italy, that's started to shoot, that started to move upwards. So, um, I think Italy is going to come back into the news cycle eventually. Uh, it's been kind of ignored, uh, tons of news on Trump and his trip to Europe and what's happening with the white house. Um, but I think Italy is, is something that people aren't really paying attention to just, I mean, by virtue of the fact that the, the news cycle is just so schizophrenic and, you know, it basically, it's like it has ADHD. So, um, this week I am short Italy. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting point. None of this stuff ever goes away. You know, we, we right. are about to... Greece? Yeah, we're about to run into Greece again. You know, all these problems, the, the, the trouble with these short news cycles is these problems flare up, and when a complete disaster doesn't happen, people just forget about them. You know, they haven't yeah. changed, nothing's <laughs> been done to deal with the problem, particularly with these Italian banks. Nothing's been done about them. So, of course, they're going to come back. And and it seems to surprise people when they do. So, I, I think it's a good short. Um and I think we're a long way from resolution in, in this particular problem. So I think it's one people should be watching very, very carefully, even if they have to dig around a little bit to find out about it. And you know, you're not going to find it on the front page of the business section. 
Right. Absolutely. And and you know, if you just look at the EWI um, MSCI index for Italy, I mean, that's rallied, I think, around 30 yeah. percent since uh, the bottom in June. Um, and now it looks like it's it's topping out. And and but meanwhile, it's, it, you know, as you said, no one's paying attention to this. Uh, so I think it, it might be a compelling short going forward, especially with the, you know, I think the inflationary headwinds, uh, sorry, uh, tailwinds in Europe uh, might be might be topping out as well. So it's going to be interesting to, to follow and then to see it, I think, eventually come back into the news cycle. Well, uh, once again, uh, my short this week, you've left me <laughs> out, out, out the ledge here because my short is uh, Chinese theme parks. Uh, I was reading a story this week that uh, as Disney unveil a half a billion dollar um, attraction, uh, Pandora, at uh, the Animal Kingdom near Orlando, where I was at the Malden Conference this past week, uh, and they also unveil a theme park based on Avatar, the most successful movie of all time, the Chinese, um, uh, just about an hour outside Chengdu, are about to open or about to finish building a theme park based around the Titanic, which seems uh, a little strange to me. For anyone that wants to indulge their Kate Winslet and Leo DiCaprio fantasies, this is the place to do it. It's a 269-meter complete replica of the Titanic. It includes the original ballroom, the observation deck, and the first-class cabins from the vessel, uh, and apparently all the fixtures are historically accurate. The kitchen is going to serve up the same food that the passengers would have enjoyed 100 years ago. But here's the kicker. For some reason, somebody thought it was a good idea to also simulate the experience of being aboard the ship at the moment it crashed into the iceberg. <laughs> now, you know, I, I don't know. Apparently, some people have criticized this move as being in poor taste, which I would have to agree with. Now, the Chinese builder who is responsible for the construction had considered scrapping this uh, iceberg crash uh, when the British Titanic Society turned up the heat back in December but they decided to go ahead with it and they managed to somehow convince their critics that this setup would not be for entertainment purposes, but rather to raise awareness of emergency evacuation procedures <laughs> and particularly the women and children first principle. So, you know, I, I'm fascinated to watch this thing play out. Something tells me that there's not going to be a lot of overseas tourists flocking to Chengdu, uh, driving an hour to uh, Daying County to get on a boat and recreate the idea of being sunk on the Titanic. So I am short Chinese theme parks this week. I don't uh, say Kate Winslet fantasies notwithstanding. Right. You can paint me like, uh, draw me like one of your Chinese girls. Let's um, not go there. Please. <laughs> but, but, you know, before we move on from that, I actually want to, um, I, I recently reread um, Peter Thiel's Zero to One. I don't know if you've read that book. I have um, not. But, no, yeah. But so, so there's one section where he talks about sort of, um, different societies and, and different people and, 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 and places them along this two by two matrix of whether they're optimist, pessimist, or they're, you know, and then on the other axis, you put them on a definite or indefinite. And the Chinese are essentially what they call indefinite, uh, sorry, definite pessimist. So, you know, they, they, they view the future as being kind of grim. Uh, you know, they can't grow their GDP fast enough in order to catch up with the West, but they're making definite plans to try and do that. So I, I actually, it, it, it makes total sense within that framework that the Chinese would do something like this. So well, Anyways. I mean, apparently in a, in a pop-up sale last year, uh, they were selling um, the most expensive package was about 300,000 yuan for a one-night special, uh, all expenses included. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, but uh, I, will, I will not be visiting that park. I'm afraid it just does not appeal to me in any way, shape or form. Well, maybe we can lobby a, a podcast trip there. 
I wouldn't mind uh, trying it out. Well, you will be on the road on your own, my friend. I've got <laughs> better things to do, I'm afraid, than go to uh, Chengdu and stand on board a fake ship and hit a fake iceberg. Well, Grant, why don't we move on next to our documentary feature? Well, you know, actually, before we do, uh, there's one important thing I just want to jump in here with, and I hate sounding like a salesman. People who know me will know I am the worst salesman in the world, but I think it's actually really important that we just follow up and let people know and remind them that the price of a Real Vision TV subscription is going to go up next week. So this is your last chance to get a free seven-day trial and access really some phenomenal insight from the sharpest minds in finance uh, from all around the world that we go and talk to uh, at the current annual price of $364. So time is running out fast. If you just go to realvision.com and start your free trial today, you can actually lock in this incredible price. And that is my sale over but uh, it does run out next week so uh, so please take a look if you haven't already grant that wasn't too salesy well i hope not because you know I, I i was a salesman once and i sucked at it <laughs> all right well let's move on to the feature where this week we'll be talking about the bit-sized cryptocurrency bitcoin well grant you know listeners have asked us to cover bitcoin and uh, admittedly we've waited for the right time and i think now is the right time there's so much noise about the price the volatility of that price. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to try and cut through the noise this week and be your guide to this potentially game-changing technology that has the potential to affect, I mean, all facets of trade, markets, and life. Yeah, this is this is such a crucial thing to try and understand. And, you know, I, I don't consider myself a Bitcoin expert in any way, shape, or form. So I will already warn those amongst you who are far more immersed in the Bitcoin world uh, than both Aaron and I, don't be haters now. We're just uh, we're just <laughs> going to take a swing at this and try and help explain what we know about it. You know, when I first came across Bitcoin, I'm ashamed to say, back in 2009 or 10, very early in the piece when uh, a buddy of mine called Trace Mayer basically almost got me in a headlock and to try and force me to buy some of this thing at like, I'm too depressed to say it, but it was like less than less than a dime. Oh, maybe don't eight say nine it. cents. Oh, and I, you know, I, I didn't understand it. I, you know, I, I, I wanted to, and I just said, you know, I, I need to look into this and read about it. He's like, don't just, just do it, and it was all just a little bit too hard. Uh, and you know, I saw Trace recently, and let's just say <laughs> he reminded <laughs> me of that conversation with a big smile on his face. But you know, what we're, what we're going to try and do here is is try and guide you through what really is game-changing technology. Um, and as Aaron said, it has the potential to affect every single facet of trade, markets, and life in ways that I think many people haven't really figured out yet. You know, Bitcoin is, and we've seen this in the last couple of weeks, the wild west of financial markets, of free markets, in fact. It's eight years old, which uh, is extraordinary, but uh, it's got a big, big future in front of it, both as a commodity and as a technology. Yeah, Grant, you know, I also echo um, that first thing you said, which is this is this has been in doing this piece, it's been a process and a journey of discovery for myself. You know, I first heard about Bitcoin in a finance class in university back in 2012. Uh, and I took a passing interest, but I never dove deeply up until now. So look, before we get into it, let's give the listeners a quick one on one on Bitcoin. And, you know, I think doing this, we can move more, we can move quickly to the interesting bits, the interesting things you need to know um, and we spoke with experts who are really blazing the trail in this brave new world of Bitcoin. Yeah, I think I think the most important distinction to make and the most important thing for people to understand is the difference between Bitcoin and blockchain. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion about this. We've got Bitcoin, uh, the actual coin, and we've Bitcoin, which people refer to the blockchain as. Uh, Bitcoin is actually an application of blockchain technology. And at its simplest level, uh, the blockchain is just... A, nothing more really than a decentralized database that keeps records 
of digital transactions, not just between the buyer and the seller, for example, but there's a third copy of this. Think of it as triple entry bookkeeping. There's a network of these replicated databases which are connected through the internet and they're basically accessible to anybody in the world with a computer. Uh, and when a single transaction occurs on this network, that transaction is irrevocable and it gets grouped together into a block uh, with a bunch of other transactions, that all of which occurred in the last 10 minutes before it gets processed. And once it's processed, the entire network is notified. Right. And, and this is where the miners come into play. I'm sure you guys have heard about the miners. And, and what they do is essentially they contribute processing power, computing power, uh, that helps maintain the network. And all these miners combined will compete to validate these transactions that, ju- that Grant just talked about through solving some pretty gnarly math problems. And as you guessed, the first miner to solve the problem and to validate the transaction is compensated. Now, in, in the case with Bitcoin, the miners receive a Bitcoin and the transaction is then timestamped. That block is added to the miner's ledger, that database, and it becomes the official ledger, official record for the next 10 minutes. Now, it's important to understand that these, uh, these math problems get harder and harder uh, as we go along. Uh, why is all this disruptive? Well, look, it's a decentralized ledger for a start. There's, nobody has uh, control over it. And the bigger the network gets, the more robust it gets. It's open uh, and it's a cryptographic network. And that enables all the parties involved in the transaction because of this freedom, because of this lack of oversight, to trust one another. It's essentially, it's a, it's a network of peer-to-peer transactions that don't actually have any kind of central clearinghouse. Uh, so there's no need for intermediaries. Uh, it's incredibly low cost. And as I said, as the, as the network gets bigger and more robust, it becomes more and more secure. And just to put that security into perspective, you know, for someone to hack into one block, just one block of this blockchain, they would need to hack into all preceding blocks going back to the creation of the blockchain. So right at time zero. Now, to do that, for, they'd have to do that for every database on the network. And that runs in the millions. So it's, it's virtually impossible. And just let that sink in. Every single database in the network, which runs in the millions, now, I know we've gone through a lot just in a short span of time, so feel free to rewind the podcast if you have to, um, if any of that wasn't clear. It's all right. We, uh, we'll hang around here and wait for you. All right. Now that you have the basics, this is where things start to get really interesting. Now, of course, we want to know where the price is headed, but I think this begins with understanding where we came from. And to get the backstory, I spoke with Tour de Meester, who's the editor-in-chief of Adamant Research and a, a young rising voice in the Bitcoin community. Yeah, Tour's background and the path he took to come to the Bitcoin world was anything but conventional. Yeah, I think it's a pretty long arc, actually. I became interested in, in Austrian economics in 2005. Like uh, Mises' Human Action was the very first book I read in that. In that it was intense, but uh, it was like, man, it, it blew me away. You know, it's funny. Of all the economic schools, the Austrian school is probably the one that makes the most sense to take you to Bitcoin, you know, this 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 repudiation of excessive credit is a key fundamental, uh, both to Austrian economics and really to understanding and embracing Bitcoin. Um, so I was really hooked, and uh, also studied um, philosophy of law, um, and so uh, co-founded the Rothbard Institute. That was two thousand six, I think, um, and so uh, and also uh, I started translating. That was. Jesus Huerta de Soto's um, Money, Bank Credit, and Economics Cycles, which is the, the uh, treatise on uh, the Austrian business cycle theory, translated that to Dutch. Um, so like in 2006, I was really emerged in, in, immersed sorry, in fractional reserve banking, the risks of excessive credit, all that stuff. 
And then, you know, the first domino started to fall in the U.S. And uh, eventually we had a huge banking crisis right where I was in Belgium, like one of the largest uh, bankruptcy bailouts was Fortis in, in, in Belgium. There's nothing quite like a crisis to spur you onwards. And that's exactly what happened to Tour. He went from selling shoes and beds in retail to making a leap of faith. But yeah, I was in, in that kind of environment where I was like, yeah, I really, I really want to, to do something with markets and investing. And so I started writing a, a free uh, newsletter, just went out every week. And um, uh, eventually uh, somebody contacted me and he was a publisher. He published uh, financial newsletters as well and asked me, do you want to you know, write your own? And I was like 26 at the time. Um, and uh, even though I had studied a lot, the theory behind markets, and I was you know, trying to get into uh, understanding particular markets, I hadn't traded any stocks. Um, so I was hesitant. I asked him for some time to think about it and uh, opened my, my brokerage account <laughs> just to like, I don't know, start playing around. And then like five months later, uh, launched the newsletter. And that was Macro Trends in 2011. Um, and so one of the things that I was really keen on is to, you know, I wanted to not just have a theoretical view on things. Um, I wanted to see for myself, like, what can you do um, in, in, in uh, an economic environment that's a lot more restrictive? Because uh, that's kind of the long term view that I still have on Europe, for example, that there is going to be capital controls, high inflation, uh, actual bank bankruptcy, stuff like that. So that's why I traveled to, to Latin America to learn more about it. And that's where I, I heard about Bitcoin for the first time in, uh, in, in 2011 in, in Buenos Aires. And so that made total sense to me. Like to me, to have this idea of digital gold where, you know, it's some digital means to preserve wealth uh, that is designed to protect the saver. Uh, you know, and once, once I understood what problems it solved, like why all of a sudden now it existed and it had not existed before, uh, that's when I became convinced that there, there really could be something there. Right. So when you hear a tour story, the guy basically went from he was selling shoes and beds to moving to South America to figure out what Bitcoin was. I mean, this is how you know that this is the Wild West at the intersection of finance and technologies. And, and since he'd been tracking this from the beginning, I asked her to give me the brief history of Bitcoin as he saw it. So very, very briefly, like uh, Bitcoin really has a long backstory. Uh, like the first, the cypherpunks uh, started communicating with each other in the 90s. And this idea of creating, as soon as, you know, uh, computers started connecting with each other and people started sending files to each other, they wondered, like, can we create digital money? So the cypherpunks are people who are um, uh, focused on improving uh, individuals autonomy in general like they, they kind of they like small government uh, they like um, the right to free speech the right to privacy and they want to apply that to money uh, they, 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 they wanted to find ways to create monetary systems that are censorship resistant and the big problem for many years was how do you create a digital currency where uh, people are not able to double spend, which is, the, you know, spend the same money twice, copy, basically copy money and create inflation and counterfeit where that's not possible. And at the same time where you don't have a central point of failure, that was uh, a hurdle that was not um, surpassed until Satoshi came with this masterful combinations of technology. Satoshi Nakamoto, who is the anonymous inventor of blockchain technology. Uh, and he created this idea of um, if everybody stores the entire ledger, 
And then instead of just uh, voting by IP address on which form uh, is the definitive, which, which ledger is the one that we all agree on is the history of the Bitcoin transactions, instead of um, using some arbitrary voting mechanism, we're going to make uh, people work because that's the one thing that you can't, uh, you can't uh, forge. You can't forge physical uh, labor. And, and so that is what Bitcoin mining is. And Bitcoin has a short but really interesting history. You can look at 2010 when it acquired its first price. And in 2011, where the first wallet was created. Also in that same year, Mt. Gox was created and ultimately hacked later on. But you should also not forget the Silk Road, which is a marketplace on the dark web where Bitcoin was a main currency of choice for transacting drugs. But even today, Bitcoin casinos are processing millions of bets on a daily basis. You know, I don't think it's uh, any surprise to anyone that uh, Tua found out about Bitcoin down in Argentina. You know, people in South America have a history of money going away. I mean, people in the in the West haven't had that experience probably since the Weimar experience back in Germany in the late 20s, early 30s. But this idea that, that supposedly sound currencies can just vanish overnight um, makes people in South America and, and uh, parts of Asia perhaps far more accepting of alternative forms of wealth storage. You know, since 2013, so much has happened in the Bitcoin world. It's really hard to keep up. We've had the FBI actually closing down the Silk Road he spoke of simply because of all the uh, illicit transactions taking place there. We've had the uh, classic photo opportunity of uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time in the UK, George Osborne, buying 20 whole pounds worth of Bitcoin just to prove that uh, he was down with the kids. We had Microsoft begin accepting Bitcoin in payment back in 2014, I think. Um, and that same year, we had Global Advisors Bitcoin Investment Fund, which was the first regulated Bitcoin investment fund, which allowed uh, investors to invest in Bitcoin. Um, most recently, a lot more press has actually been centered around the, the Winklevoss ETF, which was submitted to the SEC for approval. Now, as these things have come online, we've just seen this enormous surge of interest in Bitcoin, not just around investment vehicles, but where the interest is coming from, places like China and Korea, Japan, places that uh, have very good reason to try and perhaps move currencies offshore. The Japanese, for example, the, the government have promised them they're going to trash the yen. So Bitcoin makes a lot of sense to them. The Chinese, there's obviously capital controls there. They're a great way around um, those, those capital controls for people that want to get money offshore. But we've seen the price rise 12, 1300 um, percent in spurts, followed immediately by sort of 60 to 70 percent crashes. And I don't get a sense that that's going away anytime soon. Well, yeah, Grant, the price has absolutely been volatile, to say the least. And But the transaction volumes have kept increasing. I mean, merchant adoption as well. So I actually wanted to speak with someone who's been involved as a merchant and also as an entrepreneur. And the perfect person was Vinny Lingham, who is a serial entrepreneur and has on the ground business experience with how Bitcoin is being used. Vinny grew up in South Africa during the apartheid years in the late 70s. He witnessed the Zimbabwean hyperinflation and went on to found a company called Gift, that's Gift with a Y, a mobile gift card company and was one of the first companies in the world to accept Bitcoin for the purposes of buying gift cards from hundreds of retailers. Now, most recently, he started a company called Civic.com, which focuses on decentralizing identity and ultimately giving control of identity back to the individual. And what's really cool, too, is that Vinny is a shark on Shark Tank South Africa. So it's interesting to hear about how Vinny discovered Bitcoin. People had this problem when they're storing, you know, 
dozens of cards that had these big gift card wallets. And we basically created a digital solution, which allowed you to store all these cards in one app. And whenever you go to a store, uh, being able to access those cards. So that was interesting. So we, we built that. And it took us a while. We raised some capital from Google Ventures and a few other investors. We did a big launch at, at TechCrunch Disrupt in Silicon Valley. And when all the fanfare died down, the reality is we had no revenues. We had no sales. We, we spent a lot of money marketing and we just, we just couldn't get it going. And uh, sometime in about you know, February of 2013, I was, into, I was getting into Bitcoin. I, I just bought some Bitcoins. The price was rising. And I'm like, this is really interesting. And, and within the space of a month, the price had gone to 255 and then it crashed down to 50 bucks and I was kind of trading on the side and making a little bit of money and then I lost money and I'm like, well, eventually I broke even. I was like, well, this thing looks like it's going to die. It's dead. (laughs) And then it started coming back to life. And boy, did it come back to life. What about all those people who want to spend their Bitcoins? There's nowhere to spend their coins. And here we have 200 merchants where you can buy a gift card from us instantly, pay us instantly. And the main driver for us using Bitcoin at that point was we had a lot of credit card fraud. Think about it. The best way to take money out of a stolen credit card is go to a gift card site, give them your credit card details, and uh, hope they give you a code that you go spend a purchase on. And by the time a chargeback comes in, well, the, the site loses money. So we lost a lot of money to the fraudsters coming in. And when we looked at Bitcoin, it was, well, this is an irreversible transaction. We can exchange it in real time. We partnered with uh, BitPay to, to implement the payment systems. And I actually had a bet with my engineers because they didn't even think we'd, we'd sell anything. They're like, this is never going to work. And uh, I won the bet. First, they had over $1,000 in sales, and it just kept growing. And eventually, we became the biggest site accepting Bitcoin globally. So it was at this time in the third quarter of 2014 that Vinny wrote a blog post explaining why Bitcoin would continue to trade sideways for a while. And this is where his experience in business really helped him make a big call. And uh, I explain why. And that's because, as we noticed, as the price ri- would rise and people had gains, they'd spend it on gift cards. The spending would go up. So they wouldn't hoard it for that period of time. So we could track at gift how much people were spending and, and actually correlate it to what was happening with you know, in the Bitcoin network. And- yeah, Grant, you know, the, this part I thought it was fascinating because, you know, first of all, with, with how he transitioned to Bitcoin – I mean, this is one of those cases where you have an unexpected application of technology coming from an existing problem that everyone suffer for, suffers from. And in this case, Vinny was having trouble with credit card fraud and just so happened that Bitcoin turned out to be the best antidote to that. Yeah, and, and in, in the process, Vinny also engaged a huge community which was clearly being underserved. You know, that, that experience put some wind in his sails and it was clear that things kind of took off pretty quickly from there. Yeah, and, and Vinny... I think he drew a pretty compelling and clear roadmap for where we might be headed with Bitcoin going into the future. Now, I don't think it's a smooth transition. Yeah. So I don't think you go from one to the other. I think it starts off as a commodity and it will remain a commodity you know, forever to an extent. Then at some point it gets trusted as a, as a store of value because, well, I think people today don't expect Bitcoin to drop 80%. Right. <laughs> if you buy Bitcoins today and you want to hold it, you're not expecting that total market. Maybe a down 20%, 30%, but you, know, you never know. And so there's limited downside, I think, in Bitcoin today. And, and, and largely because you know, the, the amount of money it costs to mine a Bitcoin right now is probably about five, six, seven hundred bucks to mine a Bitcoin, um, and depending on what the miners are paying. So there is a, a base cost for mining Bitcoins. What's happened, though, is the part where, where Bitcoin becomes a global currency it's probably 10, 15, 20 years away. I mean, it's a long time away from us. I, I can't even predict when. And it doesn't need to happen in sequence either. So in some ways, it is a global currency right now. People use Bitcoin to transfer money around the world. But what happens is they send the Bitcoins and they exchange it for fiat in that local market. So it's kind of a proxy 
uh, it's a service that you know, it's a medium exchange. I'll give you some gold, and you go sell the gold and get your cash out. Like it's the same thing. Um, so I, I don't think gold. I don't think Bitcoin particularly is a currency yet. You're not paying your taxes in it, and merchants who accept it don't really keep it. They exchange it for fiat straight away. So it's not a currency, but it's being used as a medium exchange. So this is this this area where it's kind of um, you know a bit of both. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with nearly everything Vinny said there. The one the one thing I would take issue with is this idea that Bitcoin uh, can't crash 80%. You know, for me, it absolutely can, and it probably will. That's not to say it'll stay down there. Um, but things that, that have the kind of parabolic rise that Bitcoin have are incredibly susceptible to, uh, to that kind of correction. And as we've seen in the commodity market, you know, commodities can trade below the cost of production. So I think people need to be very, very careful at, uh, at buying Bitcoin, thinking, well, you know what, worst that could happen is a 20% downdraft. Uh, I think that the the potential downside is much, much greater than that. As I said, I don't think it stays down, but I think you could get some really nasty whipsaws. This is a very long-term picture, and we are really at the very beginning of this story. It's going to play out over a long, long time. Bitcoin's actually done incredibly well to already have established itself as a commodity. And as Vinny points out, having done that, it now has to fight another battle all over again to try and cement itself as a store of value and to Vinny's point ultimately as a currency that people are willing to hold uh, their wealth in you know this is this is a, a battle that is being fought and will continue to be fought on multiple fronts across every continent on the planet yeah Grant, I, I agree and I think it's really important to hear about how it's being used locally because for example look how a South African uses Bitcoin and perceives Bitcoin is very different from how an American or a European would if you look at places like, uh, and I'll use South Africa as an example, when you're in South Africa, people, they kind of look at the dollar price, they don't really care as much, okay? For them, it's the rand price. I've got 10,000 rand, how much Bitcoin can it buy me today? And as the rand depreciates against the dollar because of whatever happens in the country, oh, now it's costing me 14,000 rand yeah. or 15,000 rand. So when the Fed hikes rates and emerging market and, and, and currencies weaken, people see the Bitcoin price going up. So I, the biggest driver of the Bitcoin price last year, the two biggest drivers were the halving, so the choking of the supply, and the rising of interest rates. And the rising interest rate this year is going to have an even more market impact on the Bitcoin price because people in emerging markets look at the price and realize that if their friend buys a Bitcoin for 10,000 rand today and things keep going the way they're going, that, that same coin is worth 15,000 rand, but at the end of the year, they're going to buy it. And, and the dollar price could even say the same in that example. In the US, if I told you that you could send Bitcoins to your electricity box, you'd be like, why would I do that? Okay, but there are schools and there are homes in South Africa and Africa where that's one way they can actually pay for the electricity meter. So they can literally, from their mobile phones, to the power fair, the lights are all out, they can just send Bitcoin from their phone to the electricity box and get the electricity again. So these are the things that are happening in parts of the world where you don't have the infrastructure uh, that you have today and the payment infrastructure because these people don't have credit cards. So I think you are going to see Bitcoin being applied in other parts of the world. And that's why it's a very dynamic. I mean, there are no absolutes in Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> that's one thing I can tell you. Like every country will use it differently. Every market responds differently. Um, and when I look at Bitcoin, I look at the macro trends. And I think, I think you just have to look at the macro trends being up and to the right. And so the pricing go up and down 20% in a day. Who cares? You take it on a, on a one-year view or two-year view. It doesn't matter. I think Vinny's point, um, and this is something that I, I, I agree with, it's, it's price is not the thing that you need to focus on the most. Um, think about the network developments. Think about all the applications that Vinny outlined. Think about the solutions that Bitcoin provides to a lot of problems that millions of people face every day. Uh, and most importantly, again, with that long-term view in mind, think about 
exactly where Bitcoin is currently along that roadmap that Vinny drew for us, because that's where the value is in the future. Yeah, exactly. And I think that actually brings me back to the end of my conversation with Tour, um, because if we consider where Bitcoin is in terms of Vinny's roadmap, we already know it's a commodity. Then as a store of value, that might be the biggest story right now. So as far as the big stories go in Bitcoin, um, I think Bitcoin as a safe haven is just a massive story. It's huge. And that's why Bitcoin is going to eat into the market cap of gold eventually. That's Tour de Meester again. Um, it, it's, you know, even though on the one hand, there's a lot of stories about how Bitcoin development is stalling supposedly and scaling isn't happening. But the flip side of that is that, um, you know, even though supposedly these Chinese miners have so much power, there's not a single line of code in the Bitcoin protocol right now that was written in China, right? Or by whoever malicious, you know, it's, it's, uh, I haven't seen it. So, so, um, you know, the, the, and if you compare that with some of the efforts that were made in the, in the 90s, uh, early 2000s to launch, um, you know, eGold, for example, uh, they had central points of failure. These, these uh, companies and technologies, the, the Liberty Dollar was shut down. Um, and so I think Bitcoin is extremely robust and that makes it such an appealing um, safe haven instrument. So that's one. It'll definitely benefit from capital flight, from, you know, all, all kinds of uh, restrictions or high inflation. Uh, and, and we have evidence for that. And then uh, there is also, I think, ransomware. As far as underreported, uh, I've been talking about this all year Um and it's only now that people are becoming aware that ransomware really is a thing. Um, and I think Bitcoin is becoming the de facto currency of mal the malware economy. Um, and, and that's making malware a lot more performant and that is testing, really testing the limits of uh, online security now. Um, and so indirectly, even though it's obviously criminal, if you're going to, you know, lock people... Um, uh, encrypt people's hard drives and then demand a ransom. That's obviously a criminal act, but the consequence is going to be uh, a more secure and and encrypted uh, internet. I think long run and and you know in a way Bitcoin plays a role in that. Um, and that is um, how do you call it? It's it's inelastic demand, right? If you're faced with paying a ransom and you have to pay it in Bitcoin. There's no other way. If you want to decrypt your files, then to try your luck with the Bitcoin option. If we can see that Bitcoin is gaining ground, maybe not quite yet as a full-blown currency, uh, it's certainly already doing things that, that fiat currencies that we recognize would normally be capable of doing as a pure medium of exchange. But so right now, um, you know, Bitcoin is permissionless, and so that makes it a really cool instrument for remittance, right? People working abroad, sending money home. Uh, in particular, there's a few use cases that where Bitcoin shines, um, apparently, the Philippines-South uh, Korea corridor, uh, apparently Bitcoin has about a 20% market share there already. Yeah, so so definitely, um, you know, used by uh, specific niches um, around the world already. And so that's competition for MoneyGram, uh, Western Union. Um, and then uh, physical cash to digital is, is, I think, an important use case where, you know, the world, 20% of the world's unbanked population, for example, uh, lives in India. To give, like, I think India is a pretty interesting use case there. Uh, India has 220 million smartphone users today, expected to grow to 520 million in 2020. And so 
people have an appetite there for uh, digital cash. They, they kind of want to uh, send money to a friend or they want to uh, do in-app purchases and things like that. And so Zappo, for example, XAPO, that's a, a Bitcoin bank that has started to focus on, on that use case um, to, to help people in Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, huge, huge markets. Um, and then like Capital Flight, uh, like I mentioned, uh, we saw examples of Bitcoin being used in Capital Flight in Brazil, especially in India too with the demonetization, right? Uh, for a couple of months, um, the premium of uh, the Bitcoin prices in India was 20% over uh, just the, the world price because there was such a, a desire to get their hands on Bitcoin. People were willing to pay that 20% premium. Uh, and then in China, the same. Uh, gambling, uh, Bitcoin gambling. Uh, I look, I'm looking at some numbers here. Um, so the, the industry of Bitcoin gambling is only four years old, but um, the top ten Bitcoin casinos have processed over. It's going to be over 30 billion bets now. Um, yeah, yeah, and then like Prime Dice, for example, the 17 million bets a day, uh, and these are off-chain transactions. So they just they just um, they transacted on their own uh, in their own database, but then if you withdraw, you you know you get a real Bitcoin transaction in your account. So you deposit and withdraw in Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's just really scratching the surface as far as what's happening with applications of Bitcoin. Yeah, I think you can see as we go through this that there's a reason why I talked about trying to ignore the price from the very outset of this podcast. That's a it's a whole different thing. Speculating on the price of Bitcoin is one thing. Um, and that's what the crowd is fixated on. I mean, we've seen we've seen feckless Instagram stars posting about how they're buying Bitcoin. It's really important to understand that that's not where the action is. If, if you want to take a wild ride and try and make some money, that's one thing. But really understanding Bitcoin, really digging into how it works, what it could potentially mean for the future is important. I, I interviewed Trace Mayer uh, in New York recently, and, you know, he said, the best thing you can do is just educate yourself. Open a Bitcoin account and you know spend five bucks. Buy five bucks worth of Bitcoin just so you understand how to move it around, how to secure it. And yeah, I think, Grant, that's such a that's such a great point. And, and I guess at first blush, the technology can seem like a bit of a barrier to many. But, you know, Tour had some solid recommendations as far as, you know, seeing the picture. And, you know, for those who want to profit and, you know, get a little bit of the action and, and, and follow the big macro trends, here are some things that you can do. Yeah, I think I think you want to educate yourself as much as possible to basically determine your conviction level first, because Bitcoin is going to be very very volatile, uh, and so you know once you have that more or less nailed, is that you feel, um, and and if your conviction level is low, then I would still recommend to have a small amount, like even a very small amount, it doesn't matter, but just something that you don't touch. I think you know like try to look at building a little core position. Don't overexpose yourself really like, you know, the, what the, the kind of percentage numbers I've, I've been consistently recommending ever since Bitcoin was like $100 is to just, you know, think about anywhere between 1% one, one and 5% of your portfolio. At the time, I would say 10%. Depends on your age as well. And then where are you going to store it? Um, you might not want to store it at the same place that you buy it. It's kind of the same thing where, you know, you don't want to store your gold at the same place where you buy it necessarily. Um, so, so one of the one of the services I, I've been recommending is, is Zappo. It's like I mentioned it before. Once this Casares that you mentioned is the CEO, um, I think they do a good job for deep cold storage. Uh, actually, they store their keys on three different continents, 
So even if you know one of their vaults get compromised, uh, the bitcoins can still not be stolen. Uh, so I think that's pretty cool. Uh, and then if you want to store it by yourself, uh, which I think really is is re- commendable, uh, have a look at Trezor, Bitcoin Trezor, T-R-E-Z-O-R.com. Uh, I think it's Trezor.io, actually. They have a new website. And it's a hardware device. You plug it into your computer. It has a really easy, nice interface. And the device will store your Bitcoin private keys, but in such a way that they never get exposed to your computer. So even if your computer gets hacked or ransomware attacked or whatever it is, your Bitcoins should still be safe. So Grant, this is just our first foray into what is going to be a long journey with Bitcoin um, and a story that I'm really looking forward to following, you know, over over the long term as well, because, you know, one of the one of the conversations or one of the points that I, I discussed with tour offline and wasn't contained in the clips here is you really you know when you if you were just to look on the surface of you know kind of the debate between let, let's call it the the gold crowd and the bitcoin crowd you, you you know you're like wow these people are definitely at odds and they're locking horns so it's, it's almost as if like those if you, if you had to draw a venn diagram they don't overlap but i mean i feel like a lot of the principles do and and tour is one of those rare i mean rare breeds of just people that can see both sides and actually can see those things living together mutually. Well, this is the advantage of coming to this through the Austrian School of Economics. I mean, it does lend itself to understanding both sides. And look, I think both of them can coexist. I don't think there needs to be one to rule them all. Um, I just think that in the broader sense, the people that own physical gold, generally speaking, are of a different mindset to those who want to secure their wealth in Bitcoin. And so I think I think there's space for both. I think there there is a definite overlap in that Venn diagram, but I think a lot of the guys who uh, who want to hold and store wealth in physical gold, the reasons they want to do that, really don't lend themselves um, to to doing the same thing through Bitcoin. Yeah, Grant, I think you make an excellent point. And for listeners and even subscribers who aren't aware, we have a fully dedicated section on RealVisionTV.com just to Bitcoin with hours of content. So if you want to hear more from Tour de Miser, or if you want to see the full interview with Vinny Lingham and even our full suite of excellent contributors who can get you up to speed on the technology, get you up to speed on the application so you can spot the next opportunities. It's all there on realvisiontv.com. As well, I'd like to highlight that we just released two pieces on Real Vision publications, one on Bitcoin from our very own Raul Paul, as well as another piece on Ethereum, which is another cryptocurrency that you should absolutely be aware of. So go to realvision.com forward slash publications and check those out. Great. So Grant, let's move on to our final segment called Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derived from that experience so that hopefully our listeners can avoid those same mistakes. And this week, we spoke with Jesse Felder about what he got wrong while investing in for-profit colleges. Uh, This was a really interesting conversation. So here it is with Jesse Felder. All right. So this week, I am pleased to be joined by Jesse Felder, who's the publisher at The Felder Report. Uh, and one of my favorite follows on Twitter, uh, Jesse, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, I, I don't know how you have the time to put out all the great content that you do on a weekly basis, but uh, thanks for taking the time this week. Hey, it's uh, my pleasure. I've been a fan of the podcast uh, since it came out, uh, what, a couple of months ago. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be, uh, to be uh, here. Well, Jesse, what, the, the beauty of having you on here is so that we can get you to talk about a major mistake you've made. So, so don't think of it as too much of an honor, but you will join the halls of fame of people who've admitted to, uh, to gaffes they've made in the past. But, but more importantly, you know, what we try and do with this thing, all joking aside, is help people learn from other people's mistakes to hopefully save them 
making the same mistakes themselves. Absolutely. No, it's, it's a great, uh, it's one of the features I've enjoyed listening to. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, happy, I'm happy to be the uh, subject this time. Uh, before we get into that, Jesse, can you, for the listeners who aren't aware or, or don't know you, um, can you give us a little bit about your background and, and what you do? Yeah, I, I um, started, a, a co-founded a hedge fund after leaving Bear Stearns maybe 20, 20 years ago. And uh, my background's really in, uh, you know, value investing, uh, you know, individual uh, security selection. You know, it's kind of a dying art these days. There are no more active investors left. I'm one of those uh, rare birds that you find these days still trying to do that, play that game. Um, all right. Well, Jesse, let's dive right into, uh, you know, what the segment is for. And that's to talk about some of the mistakes you've made in the past and, and what lessons you learned. So can you convey to us um, an investing you made a mistake you made in the past and uh, the lesson you learned from that experience? Absolutely. Like uh, like Warren Buffett, I think there's two major t- you know types of investments that uh, value investors make, and and one uh, he calls the mistakes of omission are the the the. the times you didn't pull the trigger, investments you didn't make. And for me, actually, I, I think of mistakes of omission also as the, the things that I sold way too soon. Those were obviously the biggest mistakes that I've made, things that I bought and did well and then sold them too soon. But the biggest mistake of commission that I've ever made was uh, just a few years ago, I bought a stock, uh, one of the for-profit colleges and uh, <clears throat> it was Corinthian. Corinthian Colleges was the stock specifically, and they're a for-profit college that have been doing really, really well, like all of them, over you know a period of time. And uh, you know, then they came under some government scrutiny, and the government, essentially, Department of Education, the Obama administration gave the Department of Education essentially the okay to start putting these guys out of business. And I, I, I underestimated the government's willingness to put an entire sector out of business, uh, you know, and owning the stock. And I kind of held it as it, as it started dropping. And I ended up losing about 50% on that one stock, uh, which, you know, uh, you know, is, is something that, uh, you know, I, an investor should never let happen. And when the writing is on the wall, <laughs> the government basically saying, we are going to put you out of business. I should have, you know, listened to them and taken them at their word. And um, so th- there's a variety of things that I've learned from that. But uh, but yeah, that's that's the worst worst investment I've ever made. You know, Jesse, what strikes me about that uh, really fascinates me is that someone like you, who like me, has been around way way longer than we'd like to admit. It just shows you that mistakes like that happened a few years ago. You know, you were always prone to mistakes in this business, right? It doesn't matter how much experience you have we're all still one dumb decision away from a big drawdown. And it's so important to understand and rectify that. You know, and I'm willing to bet, knowing you as I do, that there's no way you have or will make that mistake again. But these lessons keep coming back to teach us new things, whether you've been in the business for 10 minutes or 30 years. Yeah, and you know, a couple of things I take away from that is I think one of the things a value investor needs to have is a time stop. So, you know, the the premise behind any kind of value investment is that the market's wrong and I think this this stock or company is undervalued and going to, you know, the market will recognize that in a period of time. And when that doesn't happen within a 2-year window, you know, that's time, you know, telling you you're probably wrong. <laughs> you know, the market's probably right here and it's not going to likely, you know, uh, recognize things the way that you see them. So that you know, that's that's one thing that you know that I that I do is just kind of have a time stop. Now, if the market doesn't come around to my my view in a certain period of time, then it's time to just move on. 
Uh, Jesse, I want to piggyback off of um, Grant's question is that, you know, let's fast forward to today. Um, you know, we have Donald Trump in the White House and he he loves to tweet and he'll tweet about a pharmaceutical company, he tweet about a steel company and stocks go up and down uh, violently. So how do you how do you take that lesson with what happened with Corinthian and the for-profit college space uh, with what's happening today with Donald Trump and, and his public views on, on other sectors and industries? Gosh, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know. I can't really think of anything. Um, well, you know, in, yeah, specifically in terms of the financial sector, I think it's it's fascinating the debate going on because the bank stocks, you know, rallied really hard after the election on the assumption that there's going to be massive deregulation. And then you hear, you know, talk in the uh, on the other side of things where, you know, let's break up the big banks and let's bring back the Glass-Steagall Act. And, you know, and so, um, yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating discussion that's totally relevant to, you know, this, this stock uh, experience that I brought up, you know, going playing out right now in the bank stocks. And it'll be interesting to see if, you know, if we don't get this massive deregulation, then, um, you know, that, that trade probably unwinds. And it looks like it's already starting to unwind over the last couple of months. Jesse, just want to take you back to your previous answer. When you talk about the time stop, which I think is so important for people to have, how have you found, you know, post-08, the time stops that perhaps you would have put on a position prior to that, you know, that, that, that stop has, I guess, necessarily been lengthened by the amount of interference in markets that stopped them functioning normally. How, how have you found you've had to adjust that time frame, given the fact that things that seem to be wrong and seem they might go one way um, don't necessarily do that within a, a realistic time frame because of whether it be QE or zero interest rates or whatever it may be? Well, you know, honestly, from a, a value investing standpoint, the the time stop, I haven't actually needed to use it because there's, there's a fascinating dynamic going on in the markets. And Steve Bregman, you know, has been talking about this recently, uh, that the, the massive push towards indexing has uh, allowed, you know, a lot of money to flow into these companies that have you know, huge float and high liquidity because they're the ones with the you know indexing money flows into companies that have been kind of um, you know suffered from this dynamic are the companies that have large insider ownership and low float, and those companies you know when they miss earnings they get hammered and because there's no index buying support underneath them, and so I found you know the situations that I found in terms of value investing are companies where you know like that. They're they're underowned by the indexes. They have a bad quarter. They get hammered. The insiders come in and start start buying even more, and um, you know it's usually recognized fairly quickly by the markets. So, you know, a good example was Western Refining last summer was one of the refining stocks that got hammered. Um, you know, into you know from what is that late. 15 into early 16 uh, and and you know has huge insider ownership so very underowned by the indexes and when that stock got hammered you know CEO and CFO came in and bought a ton of stock with their own money uh, I think the CFO bought close to 10 million dollars uh, you know with his own money and the stock was you know you look at its historical valuation got extremely cheap and you know, three or four months later, after that insider buying, company gets bought out by Tesoro. So, and the stock price doubles. So, I honestly, I think from a value investor standpoint, like Steve Bregman, you know, has been talking about uh, at the Grants conference you know, about six months ago, if you're willing to accept less, you know, lower liquidity and you know, 
if you consider that a risk, uh, then you can find some of these opportunities where the indexes are creating, you know, unusual value distortions. Jesse, I want to not not put the brakes on this, but the the concept of a time stop. Um, you know, we're, we try to speak to a broader audience here on the, on the podcast, and you know, we, we've I've heard a lot at least about. Um, you know, stops or price stops and, you know, using maybe technical analysis or other techniques to set those. But how do you actually start thinking about time stops and, and setting a time stop? Time stop? Well, you know, I, I just basically stole this. I can't even remember, from, you know, it was maybe Seth Klarman or somebody, this idea of a time stop that, you know, and maybe it was, you know, Toby Carlyle, who's written some great books on, on value investing. Um, Deep value is one that comes to mind. Um, but, when you, um, you know, typically in these value situations, and you look back, you know, quantitatively and, and how they work, uh, it's typically two to three years uh, is the, you know, they're going to happen in the two to three years or they're not going to happen. And so for me, just looking at those statistics, you know, saying, okay, if you go past two years, you know, you're, you're past that quantitative point where, you know, the, the value um, if it's going to be recognized, it's going to be recognized in that time. And if it's not going to be recognized, then, then you're probably wrong on your analysis. So uh, for me, it's, it's just that simple. Yeah, well, um, Jesse, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the segment. But uh, for our listeners who'd like to follow your work and uh, get in touch with you, uh, how can they do that? Um, thefelderreport.com. I try and blog there on a regular basis. And then, um, as you know, Aaron, I'm on Twitter all the time, sharing a whole bunch of stuff that I find of value. It's just at Jesse Felder. And just a personal endorsement from me, Jesse. I mean, you do fantastic work. And, uh, you know, I, I, hopefully a lot of people will sign up and listen to you because you just, uh, you do come up with some incredible content. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But, uh, yeah, Jesse, with that, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me on, guys. You know, Grant, Trump's been a little less prolific as of late on Twitter. Um, you know, he's been abroad, but as long as he has that app on his phone, it poses a constant risk to any industry he decides to uh, direct his ire towards. Yeah, that's a great point, Aaron. You know, there are two ways that the government can uh, screw you here. One is deliberately and one is accidentally. Uh, and it doesn't matter which way they get you, they both have the same effect. So, so as Jesse found out the hard way, you have to pay attention to to things that people in a position to make rules are saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, just, I think another layer that people need to think about, and I don't know if it's that big yet, but um, I recently listened to a podcast where uh, the host of this podcast basically enlisted the help of some pretty smart data scientists to help them create a, a, a trading bot that trades off of Trump's tweets. And they were able to do this pretty easily and and these sorts of tools are becoming more accessible now. You know, it's it's not you don't have to write a single line of code. It's it's almost point and click. So maybe that's another layer that we have to think about. Where imagine you have more retail investors who are like, you know what? Let me buy that Trump tweet ETF. I mean, it's not out yet. Maybe that's something that I can I can introduce. But uh, just something else to think about. Sad. <laughs> well, Grant, unfortunately, it is sad because we've come to the end of this episode. But before we conclude, guys, I just want to remind you again that the price for a one-year subscription of Real Vision TV will be going up next week, starting on June 7th, from $364 to $597. So make sure to lock it in. You have one week left. Don't say we didn't warn you. Indeed. Well, look, uh, before we go, the standard legal disclaimer, uh, anything you heard on this episode really should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, 
place your stops and do always trade responsibly. And maybe your time stops as well, as Jesse mentioned. So next week, we're back with the usual long, short and things I got wrong segments. And for our commentary feature, we're bringing back a Real Vision TV all-time favorite, Stephanie Pomboy, who is the founder of Macro Mavens. Now, it seems like not a day goes by without a headline about how some retailer is shuttering stores or is facing mounting inventories. Well, Stephanie was ahead on all these trends, and she's someone you want to pay close attention to as the economic cycle gets ever longer in the tooth. Yep. And uh, between now and then, if you have an interesting question about this week's show, or obviously, for that matter, anything else, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. That really helps us go up the rankings. Yes, indeedy. We still don't understand how, but we've been told by everybody that does. So please leave those reviews. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then please do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you can find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for us at Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.